Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with this Perlative Podcast. My guest today is Martine Duprel. Martine, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Ariel, for having me. Thank you for the invitation. You know, before the before we got started, you were saying, you know, that you're used to being more behind the scenes. And it's true. There's been uh, a lot of times where I've seen you be behind the scenes at brands in various roles. And one of the things that really struck me about your career, we'll of course talk about what you're doing now, is that you have really done different types of things. You haven't just had the same job at a bunch of companies, but you've worked at very different companies doing very different things. Was that was that by design? Was that something that you were trying to do? Yeah, it's um, absolutely. Um, you know, it's 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 the way I consider my my professional experience. Um, always learning and, and working in different fields. Uh, it's for me. It's really a way to improve my skills um, because when when you are only on one track, um, for me, you, you can't really consider the different aspects on a project. Uh, um, you know, the world is, is, uh, is various. Um, and especially now, because with the internet, uh, everything is connected. So for me, it's, uh, it's really important to have a holistic view, a global view on, on different industries, different kind of companies. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Now, your background, if you sort of had to put everything together, is various forms of marketing and communication at luxury watch brands. And um, Vacheron Constantin, I think, is where maybe you and I, or maybe it was at a, uh, somewhere else where you and I first uh, interacted. Then, of course, at Singer Reimagined. Mm-hmm. Um, then you did a few things. And then over the last several years, you started something called the Watch Library. You are currently the CEO of the Watch Library. But talk a little bit, was that a, was that a natural progression for you, uh, I just want to hear a little bit about what you feel you were trying to accomplish. What was interesting to you about watch brand marketing? Yeah, perhaps a little bit about me um, to, to understand uh, the consistency. Uh, oh, yeah. I, um, I came from a family of craftsmen and artists. So I really brought this knowledge and sensitivity for um, savoir-faire and creativity uh, in my career. And um, I was a recruit uh, at Vacheron Constantin. And that time I was working on a big exhibition in Le Louvre about uh, savoir-faire and craftsmanship and métier d'art. In, in Paris? In Paris, yes. Right. So, yeah, I'm French. <laughs> I guess you can hear uh, with my accent. So, um, so I started in Vacheron Constantin, you know, better than me, uh, really heritage brand. And, uh, and for me, it was, uh, it was just amazing to work on, on VC collection, on different product launches, on the reveal of the overseas too. And, uh, yeah, I really learned it's, it's the way I came to, to watch making. 
And then I start a new adventure, uh, Singer Imagine, as you mentioned. And, and for me, it was really, you know, my entrepreneurial uh, spirits uh, have a strong appealing to really build projects, build new projects, uh, participate to new adventure. And, and the watch library is also, you know, in this, in this direction. So, yeah, I started Singer Imagine. I was contacted by Marco Baracino. Um, he was working with Rob Dickinson on, on the launch of the, of the, the brand and the company for the year after. Um, and it was just amazing. I, I think we met also, um, at this period in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you were out yeah. here in LA and we went to, uh, the Singer Garage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, it was amazing collaboration, and for me, it was a way to be really close to how you create, build a brand, launch a new project, you know, create really something new. Um, so I really express uh, my entrepreneurial spirit uh, thanks to this uh, experience. What was the same and what was different between a small startup company like Singer Reimagined and a relatively established corporate-owned company like Vacheron Constantin? Um, the same was about uh, the watch. Uh, I mean, it was really focused on the movement, uh, mechanical movement, and, uh, you know, working with excellence with the, the Agenor uh, family. It was the time that um, uh, Jean-Marc Lidereche uh, was still there, uh, starting to pass uh, the, the company to his son. So it was really like really focused on on, on the movement, on the complication with this uh, yeah. central chronograph. All about making the machine work, right? Exactly. So yeah, it was really like high-hand mechanical movement. So, and the difference was really about let's say, these California spirits. <laughs> you know, it was more cheer, uh, working together. It was cool, you know, less. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, a different so way, that, different... So Rishmat, not chill, not cool. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, it was, uh, you know, California is completely different compared to Geneva. It's not a question only of company. Oh, I'm reminded you know. of that every time I go to Geneva. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> they like so, to tell me. They're like, Ariel, just so you know, this is not California. And I'm like, I get <laughs> okay, it. Relax. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was really the, the, the main difference. Yeah. So, what is the Watch Library? The name is wonderful because it sounds inviting and, of course, exciting. Mm. But it's also, you know, of course, a little bit ambiguous. That could be a lot of different things. Yeah. What is the Watch Library? The Watch Library is uh, first a foundation, a charitable foundation, public utility foundation. Okay, so like, a, is that like a nonprofit? You mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It was uh, really um, think like that at, at the very beginning of the project, uh, in order to make the watchmaking heritage accessible to everyone. So yeah, it's an institution. And it's also now, uh, since the 1st of September, uh, a platform, a digital platform in open data where you can find not everything for the moment, but the, the ambitious is really to build a big data. You can find a lot of 
archives about uh, watches, archive from Switzerland, uh, everywhere in Europe, US. So it's it's an amazing repository of content archives about watchmaking. Now, I'm going to ask you to boil that down to be a little bit more specific because, you know, that description in a lot of ways is the same as a blog to watch, but I know that what you're trying to do with the watch library isn't a watch blog. So help explain it even further. Where would this content come from and what would people want to use it for? Yeah, I have to start with the beginning of the of the of the story. Um, Please. Yeah, so it was in 2020. Uh, I received a call from Pierre Maillard. You know, of course, Pierre Maillard from yes, yes. Star. Um And Pierre knew me from my previous background at Bachelot Constantin. Uh, so he contacted me right before the containment because him and his nephew, Serge Maya, were looking to, for someone to turn their first experience of um, digitizing their archive at Europastar to a bigger, major project for the entire watchmaking industry. Um, so they, they, they start to digitize their archive. and they so let, let me give a little context here. So Europastar yeah. is a Swiss magazine about the watch industry. It's really one of the only ones, and it's been around for a while, and it's a family-run uh, business right now, and they wanted to digitize their archives of publications, and what you're saying, Martine, is they apparently thought that they figured out a good system of digitization. They say, hey, why not? Let's digitize more. Yeah, they start to digitize, and, and they really uh, receive very good feedback from that, a big interest of people. Of course, it's it's also linked to the development of the vintage watches interests. Um, so and and they say, yeah, it's uh, it's it's super to to have this online um, at Europassa. You can access through the, through the club, uh, but it would be more interesting to have like more archive um, uh, that we, they will be able to to present. Uh, so they were looking for someone to really, you know. Imagine the project with them, build a project, run the project. So, so we start to, to discuss. I, I wrote down notes and yeah, I have the privilege to be chosen to collaborate with these uh, amazing people because as you said, they, it's, uh, I guess it's the third or the fourth generation of uh, journalists specializing yeah. in, in watches. Um, it's a independent uh, family-owned company, and uh, what they do is just uh, just amazing. And for me, even and I'm in the watch industry since 2015. It's quite new, so um, yeah, I learned a lot uh, with them. What's the support they get like? I'm curious because you know the watch industry likes communication, not usually huge traditional fan of independent media, though they've had to be, you know, sort of recent years. Um, but being Swiss and being right there, I think, gives the Mayard family a special advantage. Um, wh- what exactly is their mission? What are you trying, are they trying to achieve? And would you agree that their special position being there in Switzerland and having done this a few generations gives them a special advantage? Yeah, of course, they are... Um I say at the same time they are um, ob- observator witness of the how the industry uh, change and, and develop. Right. 
but they are really also part of this change because um, they are, you know, they are real journalists. Uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, you, you have to, when you read the article made by uh, Pierre Maya or Serge Maya or the other journalists working with them, it's just amazing. It's like you really deep dive into a subject. They represent also, um, I mean, all the industry. They are not... I don't know if it's the right word in English, but partisan for one brand or another. They they really um, they've maintained independence and they're neutral. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. They're, they don't have an agenda, and they've earned that because of those relationships and somehow convincing of, hey guys, you want us to stay independent or else we can't tell true stories. And again, pretty much every other, we'll call it foreign media, meaning out of Switzerland, has not been able to have a relationship like that with the industry. So I'm just trying to point out that this is a special group of people. And yeah. um, if they're doing something, it implicitly seems to have the support of the industry. And look, it's an easy sell, I think, because we know that the history of the industry is part of the value of today's watches, right? Exactly. And uh, and for the project, it was it was essential to to build a project on their own I mean reputation to and and relationship they have with uh, with Brown, as you said. Um so yeah we, we were in, in March two twenty twenty and uh, and the world closed suddenly and um with Serge Maya we we start an incredible world tour uh that leads us to Italy, Germany, Japan, China and of course Switzerland. And uh, we start by identifying had hundreds of institutions and organizations, holders of archive. Because today, still today, even we 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 change a lot uh, with the the launch of the platform. Content and archive about watchmaking are not really accessible, and especially online. Uh, you can find some some element on Google, but with a lot of mistake in it, and yeah. and it's not really the first end uh, document. Well, let me ask you a question. My guess is that the brands give your organization access to their facilities and archives, and you go in and you digitize. I guess the question, is that correct? And are the brands easy to work with? Are they open? Do they allow you to view their archives? We, we didn't ask the brand to participate. Um, I mean, by sharing their archive. Uh, as, as, as we discussed, I um, had my first experience in Vachon Constantin, and I know that archive and history and all these element are really strategic and part of the brand DNA and and like the others we don't really want to share um, okay, any because we are an open open data platform so what what data is it if it's not archive data from brands what where's the data coming from other than Europastar they they came from museum like uh, Musée International d'Horlogerie in La Chaux de Fonds. Uh, okay, so Musée not brands themselves, but other institutions that yeah. themselves have these documents. Yeah, absolutely, institution okay. like. I'm just Museum. curious where the data comes from. You know, I think that's a very important sure. question. Yeah, and uh, from also Horlogical Society. Uh, one of the our big partner is the Horlogical Society of New York. 
Okay. And, and Nick Manusos is also part of the board committee of the foundation, like uh, Régis Huguenard from the Musée International. There is a lot of content out of the outside of the brand, you know, in, in different, even in, in the private, uh, in collectors' private libraries, for instance. Yeah. And what is the process of getting that to you? Like, how do they, like, how does it become digitized? Like, if somebody wants to say, hey, watch library, I have some stuff that should be part of your database. What's the process like? We organize and we create a scientific committee with really experts, um, historian and expert in, uh, in watchmaking heritage. Uh, we have Pierre-Yves Donzé. I guess, you know, Pierre Evdon is an historian, yeah. he's based in, in Japan, he's in Boston for the moment. Uh, Laurence uh, Bodenman from, from, she, she works in, she works in the, in the watch brand, in heritage. So we, we have different experts and, and that's, that's really their, their job to select uh, the, the archive we, we have to uh, digitize in priority. Now, I haven't looked at a live version of the Watch Library. I'm not sure what the status is right now. But what is the the public-facing side like? Who has access to it? Is it paid? Is it free? And what tools are at the disposal? Because, you know, uh, data sometimes is only as good as the filters and indexes and yeah. ways you navigate it. Talk a little bit about, you know, what is it like to use the Watch Library? Yeah, the, the library is, it's, uh, it's really for everyone in the industry, journalists, industry experts, um, people from marketing, you know, really everyone can use the watch library. Everyone looking for content and information about the heritage, of course. Um, but also collectors. Uh, we have a lot of collectors and especially the new generation of collectors. Um, visiting the platform, you know, uh, looking for for content, and the way to access is really in open data. It's free. Um, it's it's free, and it's really part of the mission of the foundation. Um, the mission of the foundation is to preserve the watchmaking heritage and to really valorize this heritage to make it accessible. How do you how do you curate? What it looks like. I mean, it's how is it indexed? I mean, it, you know, I've seen some of this data. Yeah. And, you know, I guess you can categorize it by era. You can categorize it by brand. But there doesn't seem to be much of a real academic approach yet, right? Like, you know, yeah. with, with, a, with a normal library, we have the sections, we have the genres. Like, you know, who's making all that for something like the Watch Library? Yeah, it's it's true that even we we work with a really expert to define the um, search experience on on the platform. I mean the f the filter, as you said. Yeah. Uh, what what kind of filter are are really important? So you have two level of filters: second, first, and secondary filter. So you can you can select, as you said, by uh, by sources, by media, by country where the archive was was created uh, for instance by date of course but um, the idea was not to create like something really uh, straight um, it's it's really a platform with a special user experience uh, in terms of right. search it's it's easy to access it's visual it's a uh, 
we, we receive a lot of feedback about the design by itself. It's like, it's not boring. It's so, so you have, you have to try. And I'm looking forward to it. It sounds cool. Okay. And especially one of the functionality really important in the platform is the timeline. So it's really a way to navigate within the, within the archive, within the topic you select only by um, visualization through, through the years or through the period you select. So it's more intuitive. And, uh, yeah, I received from, uh, one of our donors, which is really an expert in heritage, he said, yeah, that's the first time I use this kind of uh, functionality and it's great. It's allowed me to have a new experience in terms of search. And it's really what we want to do. So the platform is, is for experts, but not only, it's also for collectors and little by little linked in relation with the content we will add in the platform, it will be more for the general public, for, you know, watch loader without being an expert in terms of heritage, um, just to find out information about this vintage watch or a specific brand or, you know, um, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, look, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, years ago, within the first year or two of me ever writing about watches back in, you know, around... 2007 is when I started. 2008, I was already thinking about this. There's no one list of all the watch brands. Just the sheer idea of having a list of all the watch brands. And forget the fact that new ones are being made, it seems, almost every couple of days. But yeah. there's never been just a full list because nobody actually even knows all the brands. So any of these academic resources, no matter how much they tried, would only have to be a slice of the larger history, so much of the real watch history, at least over the last hundred years, especially over the last several hundred years, is lost forever. We have little bits and pieces. Mm. We have lots of guesses. We have a lot of mysteries, but this yeah. is never going to be what we can consider a complete history that we can collect, even with digitization. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, and uh, little by little, you know, we discover every week's new archive, really archive unknown even for experts, because with the platform, we create, we had created like a movement. People just call and or, or, or drop an email to say, Hey, I found this. What do you think? So we work with the, uh, uh, the um, scientific committee to evaluate. But you're right. There is no, uh, there is no place. Uh, but now we have the watch library but where you can find, you know, old content and archive uh, related to, to this industry. You have to visit every single museum or, or libraries uh, to, to find content. And it was uh, one of the things that uh, Nicola Bjebuk from, from Tagerier, Tagerier is, is one of our new uh, donors. They, they joined this summer. And, uh, and he said, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, he's like new, um, less than me in, in the watch industry. And he said that I really, when I start, I really try to find a place where I can learn, you know, a place where, where you have everything about heritage and history. And it's so difficult to, to find. Yeah. We had Nicholas has been on the show, um, actually. Um, and we talked a little bit about that. I think one of the interesting things for me 
and maybe you can give me your opinion, is that still right now, and it's a new, still a new industry, meaning the collecting, the watch collecting industry. The watch industry is not new. The watch collecting industry is relatively new. And that means most of the well-studied people are self-taught and they're collectors, they're media people such as myself, but there's no school teaching watch history. There isn't sort of an established legacy of an academic tradition. There aren't, you know, experts who have who have written established, you know, academic books that have been peer-reviewed. Like none of that really exists. And a lot of it, of course, hasn't necessarily been the economics for it. But do you agree or disagree about that sort of the status of a lot of this? And a lot of it relates to the money around watch collecting. Yeah, it's true that for for the moment the knowledge is uh, is dedicated to I mean students less for collectors, but you you have some some initiative. I'm thinking about the AFHH. They participate to to educate. Um, Our logical society in New York they they do an amazing job. Yeah, to really uh, spread the culture. Um, so there's some, but these are new. These are very new institutions. Yeah, it's new. It's new. And uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, with the Watch Library, it's the first time that we have a collective uh, project um, because it's really a project for, for the industry, by the industry, our, our donor think, thinking about uh, Audemars Piguet. Uh, they, are, they are with us since the beginning. The idea and the, really their motivation is really to share the knowledge to the industry, to the collectors. It's, um, you know, they are really motivated by the collective aspect of the project. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, still missing perhaps something. And uh, and yeah, could be something for, for the watch library in the future. I don't know. I want to say that I think it was absolutely the correct thing to make this a nonprofit charity mm. um, in terms of the business structure. I think that's really a wise way in terms of structuring yourself to move forward and to sort of have the right mission and the right incentives. My question is, who should actually be paying for this? Should, be, should it be watch brands? Should it be consumers? Should it be the Swiss government? I, I don't know. I mean, in your opinion, who would stand to gain the most by funding what you are, are running right now? There is different shareholders in the project, I mean, in terms of benefits. For, for, of course, for the institution, I mean, public institution, it's important because the, the project is, um, is also linked to the UNESCO recognition that uh, was in the... Right. December 2020, the recognition of the uh, watchmaking uh, savoir-faire. Um, so they, they have to continue, you know, I mean, as an institution in this direction to really promote um, the savoir-faire to preserve the heritage. Though, so they, they clearly can benefit from uh, by uh, supporting the watch library. Um, for, for the brand, it's it's obvious because a lot of the brand um, consider themselves as a heritage brand, and uh, to be consistent, uh, it's really important to behind the product and the commercial aspect of being an heritage brand uh, to to have really a genuine um, commitment uh, to to engage uh, them themselves for. 
let's say for good um to to give back to the watchmaking community i'll tell you my concern martin and maybe you can tell me what you think about this here's my concern and you know this because i think of course you've had many roles in marketing of brands watch companies if it were reliant on them to pay for these types of academic endeavors uh, they will treat this like a marketing expense. And as a marketing expense, it's always sort of like a pleasant extra. They never see it as a 100% necessary expense. It comes after a long line of other expenses and they in, in, and they turn it off if they feel like they can't afford it. So my worry is that the watch academic field would be disrupted, especially economically, anytime there's a slight even whiff of an economic downturn and the budgets get slashed. And so I see a limitation in growth, a limitation in, in, in sustainability, a limitation uh, in just being able to run in a stable way if the brands themselves are always reliant for the funding. You know what I mean? Uh, I know perfectly what you mean. And I think that perhaps that's the reason why some brands say no, because they consider it as a, a marketing operation. But uh, for the donors we have today are really donors uh, engaged with a genuine engagement for heritage. Part of the donor are anonymous. So it's a real engagement to really preserve the archive and the heritage. Right. And, and the other, so we have three donors as a like, major brand. Uh, they want to stay anonymous because it's not part, as you said, because it's a risk, but it's not part of the brand or marketing strategy at all. Um, and uh, talking about the visible one, Audemars Piguet since the beginning, Richard Mille and, and, and Tiger it's we work with the heritage department. We, we don't work with the marketing department. And, um, and this is also really close to their, um, their own engagement to preserve the watchmaking heritage. Uh, considering, uh, Omar Piguet, uh, they do a lot, a lot to preserve the, the savoir-faire and the craftsmanship, uh, you know, individual craftsmanship, but also industrial uh, savoir-faire. So it's, it's, it's kind yeah. of uh, extension of their own strategy. But you're right, it's not like something related to, to, to the brand, I mean, marketing, only marketing aspect. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. Well, you know what I found interesting, and this is a great opportunity to talk about it, is 
this heritage department. You know, a couple of years ago, or maybe several mm-hmm. years ago, this was not really a thing at most brands. And if it was, it was like, you know, one employee and they also had other things to do, like, you know, run the copy machine. Like, yeah. this was not really taken seriously. Now, all of a sudden, and I think Nicholas at Tag Hoyer is a perfect example, um, there are not only heritage departments, but the people that run them are powerful. They have a lot of say yeah. and decision-making authority at brands. Nicholas um, is one of them. Uh, at Breitling as well. It's very big. Uh, we, we we know that at Omega, it was <laughs> they had a lot of power over there. But this is uh, a role I see that also has a huge amount of decision-making uh, power. Uh, I was yeah. um, doing a presentation with Longines. Recently, they did an event here in Los right. Angeles, and I did a talk with their uh, heritage, their head of heritage and bra- head of brand and heritage. They call it. it's always a different title, and uh, this is sort of an interesting phenomenon. Would you agree that sort of relatively recently these heritage departments have popped up, and that they are interestingly quite powerful? Yeah, fully agree with you. It's uh, it's sad, perhaps I don't know. Depending on the on the on the watch on the brand, sorry, it was uh, ten ten years ago or less. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, of course, um, related to the development of the vintage, uh, vintage markets, the second hand markets, because I, I read a few days ago that the second hand market will be bigger than the new watches markets in, 10 years, 15 years, is it, is so it I, correct? I, I, I would take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, you have to check. It was like, On, wow. As of the trajectory of the pandemic, if it went that way, which we know it won't. I, I, think, I think you're right. It's obviously a very big one. But I, w- when I hear things like, if, if I said to you, did you know that the sale of used cars will be larger than the sale of new cars? You'd be like, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. even make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for cars, uh, perhaps cars is different because, you know, with the electric uh, market, it's... Uh, that, you, you know, know if, you, if that was true... It's renew the market. <laughs> if that was true, I would be afraid as to how few new watches are being sold, right? If there's more used watches being sold than new, I'd be like, why aren't we making new watches anymore, right? That would be the yeah, big, big was, problem. Uh, yeah, that's what was, I was like, okay, it's strange. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true that uh, the heritage department, you, you can see it when, when you have the launch of the new, uh, a new piece. Um, it's really often a reveal of the old, old model. Um, and uh, usually you have the heritage manager or someone from the heritage department that's contribute to the presentation. And um, it's, yeah, uh, the heritage department has a, a real importance and impact within the within the, um, the watch industry in each brand. I mean, most of the brand. And you said that about Longin. Longin, they start to, they digitize their, all their archive a few years ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was an amazing, uh, amazing project. And... Um, and our partner is the partner, is the supplier who did the, the project for them. Um, so they, they are really involved in the, in the way to preserve their own heritage. And, uh, but most of the brand, they are lost, uh, part of the, or totally the heritage. And they, they try to, to recreate, to read, to find, um, you know, to find documents about... Yeah, uh, like, why did we do this? What did we make? What yeah. was our relationship with, like, this country, retailer, whoever? All kinds exactly. of stuff. Exactly. Mm. 
So I, I'm, I'm thinking more a little bit about this heritage department, and I'm thinking strategically why it makes sense. And again, I'd like to hear your, your opinion here. Here's my theory. What we've seen over the last couple of years is that the success and stability of a brand is often directly related to the CEO. If it's like a good CEO, they have great times. If it's a bad CEO, like everything breaks down. And I think that brands were too reliant on essentially an administrator to maintain a creative direction. So my theory is that the the, the brand the heritage department is essentially there to keep the creative part of the company on some type of autopilot or going in the event that the leader of the company is ineffective or goes away. Mm, yeah, I think interesting. Uh, it's uh, it's true that heritage department it's it's uh, really more. They're stable. about continuity, right? They're really about continuity. Yeah, they're continuing the the story. It's uh, they they are stable and and uh, it's kind of um, point de repère uh, for, for for the brand. It's it's really the 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 DNA of the of the brand of the company is uh, in this department. Um, it's like if yeah. all else fails, like if we lose our brain, we have like a backup. It's the heritage department. They'll at least remember how we made watches and we were successful. We can always go to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Uh, you're right. Mm-hmm. Patek Philippe has their, I don't know what they call it, but they're, you know, their Patek Philippe, uh, you know, memoir of how what a great watch is. And apparently it's this loose assortment of, of documents I, they've never let me see it, even though I've asked. But they actually had to create documentation that said, this is what we think a Patek Philippe watch should encompass and standards of whatever. Because it's a very interesting idea. If like someone picked up the brand 100 years from now and they had to make what would satisfy people today as a Patek Philippe, that would be really, really hard to do without... You know, I guess we use the word savoir-faire, but it's a lot more complicated than that, right? It's truly the the embodiment of the culture. Yeah, it's not only about the savoir-faire, as you said, you're right. It's it's about the culture. It's about intangible culture of of the manufacturer of the brand, and um, and it's it's really important. And it's also back to the watch library platform. It's something that you can discover by uh, with your search because it's not only about the information by itself, but it's also about the context uh, because you have access to the magazine, to the books, to you have access to the uh, how was the the world in that period? Um, what are the other competitors? What are the the trends? You know, and and you're right, this intangible uh, part of the culture, it's it's key. Um, for for manufacturer for brands and um, what about exhibitions? I know you're the watch library, but you have all this knowledge. You have all these documents, and it would make sense for you or someone in your organization to curate exhibitions from time to time and maybe have them displayed at venues. Um, I I love things like that. I like special museum exhibits. I would find it fascinating. What are your thoughts on that, or are those already part of the plans? Yeah, it's already part of the plan, okay. right? Uh, yeah, uh, because uh, the the priority for us is really to preserve the archive and to build uh, this big data related to uh, watchmaking heritage and give these the the big data accessible as much as possible. And and then and then after we come the curating part of the project. 
uh, with a specific angle because we really want to to show how watchmaking is linked to other uh, industry, of course, to I don't know fashion, science, uh, architecture, um, um, based on the on the document and uh, and the specific uh, curators involved. So definitely we want to create this as a second part of the project. It will be both online and offline. And um, it will be a collective exhibition to involving museum, perhaps collectors, of course, Orological Society. It's going to take a lot brand. of experimentation, right? Yeah, exactly. Wait, so, what what yeah. physical venues would, you be, would this be at? Because I've actually thought about this a little bit because I want there to be more watch museums out there in the way that there are art museums out there. And there's a lot of, you know, nuance and complexity and the details have to be right. And I think there needs to be like maybe five failed institutions for everyone that makes it because it's going to be hard to get the, the chemistry right between funding and interest and alliances, right? Yeah, um, I think that's, I don't know, we, we, we not works, you know, so deeply in the project by identifying the the location, but uh, the collective part uh, could be the platform, and and then we can perhaps build um, like a path that um, allow um, visitors to go in different places um, in different countries. You know, because people on on watchmaking they they travel a lot. Um, even collectors. Yeah. No, it, it'd have so, to be all over the world. I mean, you would have to centralize. Absolutely. You would have to be yeah. like the the communication point between the interests in Switzerland and these various institutions around the world, which the FHH kind of tried to be, but it just became too much for them because there's just too much to do. But, you know, there's all these major areas around the world, several dozen at least, where there's a lot of watch buying happening. And you would have to have some type of relationship with as many of those regions as possible, right? Exactly. And uh, we are based in Geneva, but we are international. We work uh, lots with the US, with uh, Japan. We start to work um, in China because uh, we have an expert within the scientific committee. Um, she worked many years in the Cité Interdite in, in, uh, in Beijing. And um, it has to be international for sure um, since since the beginning. And it's uh, depending on the on the I mean the topic of the exhibition. You can really uh, go in new places, not only you know the 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 usual uh, usual one. You got to give me some examples. What are like what are your dream <laughs> watch library exhibits in the next five years? What would they look like? Yeah, it would be something, um, if we consider watchmaking and architecture, for, for instance, uh, you have many places in, in the world related to architecture. Uh, it could be private places or, um, or amazing museums. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really open. I will share later once once we will be uh, on this uh, on this step. Okay, we'll talk. We'll talk about that. I'm because I'm yeah. I'm personally interested in that. I mean, look, I've been doing this 16 years now. I don't know what I'll be doing 16 years from now or another 16 years after that. But if I was going to remain in my trajectory, 
I would rather do something on the more academic direction than the more commercial direction. Like I don't want to be a salesperson like a lot of my colleagues mm -hmm. colleagues turn into. That does not interest me. You know, I'm not going to start a watch brand. Like that's, I, I mean, I could do that, but it's just not where my heart is at. That's not what I want to be doing. I'd rather help create more interest in the category. I'd want to be like one of those advocates that from my corner of the world is saying, hey, be interested in watches. And I think these watches are cool and check this stuff out. Like, you know, I, that for me seems to be a more logical, uh, you know, way for me to sort of end my career. But right now those jobs don't exist. Like, you know, it, there's no watch museums for me to go be the curator of and retire and get cool brands and exhibits happening there. Like that would be really cool, mm. but that infrastructure doesn't exist yet. Yeah, yeah. So... Um... Well, you're welcome in the project, Ariel. <laughs> uh, you, you, you can be part of the advisory board of the project and uh, and and really contribute to to this aspect, this, the the creation aspect. If you th if you think my voice would be valued, I would be very happy to accept your invitation. But you you, you know that I'm the loudmouth American. <laughs> no, no, we we work a lot with with US and uh, <laughs> and uh, we we need to cover all US. So for for the moment, we are really focused on on the east part of US in, in New York. But uh, yeah. I gotta say, and I say, and I say this to different guests on the show, and I'll repeat it to you because it just it makes me smile that the watch category as a hobby has such a bright future really surprises and delights me. Like the world is going in such a terrible direction so many ways, but it's like we know that in 20, 30 years, people are still going to be into fine watches, maybe even more so than they are right now. And I don't know how that happened, but it it's kind of this <laughs> one of the amazing ironies of of our our times, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're right. You're right. So we have to keep this idea in mind for sure. But it's, you know, I I think we should talk more about that because you know, I'm I'm currently writing an article. It's not done yet. It's kind of a morbid topic, but the topic is what happens to people's watch collections after they die, because mm -hmm. the watch collecting hobby is still, we'll call it, young enough that there haven't been like generations of people that died with a thousand watches or a hundred watches, you know, or more. Mm. And we're gonna start getting to that in the next five, ten, twenty years where people who have had a lot of money and knowledge have amassed large collections. And when they pass away, there's going to be various things that can happen. And I don't think every one of these watch collections is destined to be sold off in a fire sale. Some of them might be donated to watch museums. Some of them might become mm -hmm. museums unto themselves, um, like art collections became you know, actual museums and things like that. So I think that there's a lot of questions about how the collecting community industry will respond when these huge collections uh, start to become available for a new owner. Because, you know, let's be honest, most of the time the families are not going to want to keep these collections or even know what to do with them. Yeah, so, yeah, it's with the, the auction house uh, sales. Uh, but it's it's also, um, you know, that collecting watches is often starts um, because your parents... Uh, gave you a watch or perhaps your father or I can say mother. But <laughs> Didn't happen with me. I had to was... figure it out for myself. Yes. So yeah, it's uh, you can transmit. It's not uh, it's not uh, always dark. Uh, you can transmit your your collection to to your your family. Um, at the watch library we, we receive some 
some quote about that, uh, but more about, uh, I mean, the the personal um, bibliotheque of, of collectors. Yeah. Because yeah. often when you are collectors, you also collect books, uh, manuscripts. Um, and uh, so for us, it's, uh, so we have to evaluate. The Do you want my two of decades course. of warranty cards? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> or the you know what the funny thing is the watch boxes that were made so poorly they disintegrated and you're like you're like wow I, nobody thought that, you know that that someone would want this box twenty years from now but there's so many like things that have disintegrated and certain watches entirely that straps cases dials like it's actually not the case that these things are designed to last forever right yeah yeah it's true but uh, not forever but. Uh... It, it can uh, it can length uh, uh, yeah for a long time. Huh? What are some things that so far through this journey you've personally learned about the history of the watch industry, which has really got you hooked? Like something you're curious about, something you're excited to learn more about. Maybe like anytime there's a new archival document on this topic, you want to see it. I'm just curious where where how this is igniting your own passions. Uh, yeah, so I'm not historian, but I, I really love the, the the idea that I can uh, improve my knowledge about the secret travels of uh, watchmakers. Secret travels? Uh, yeah. What does that mean? From watchmaker from I mean watchmaker from Switzerland. They st- they start to to visit the world and and spread the, their expertise. At, at the end of the 19th century, okay. um, and it's it's amazing because um, by considering the watch community, you can you can see that the the community is is really worldwide, and um, and different countries contribute to the to the savoir-faire of uh, mechanical watchmaking. So yeah. That's 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 super interesting, and I was uh, I was told, but also by Sebastian Vivas uh, from Montmartre Piguet, so he's an expert. He was looking for different topics, especially about guillotage. Yeah, um, and he said that the guillotage, uh, everyone agreed on the fact that it starts the first watch uh, with guillotage starts in uh, 1786. That's if very I specific. Yeah, yeah, very specific. And thanks to the watch library, he discovered in 10 minutes that no, the first one was like 20 years ago by another guy, you know. Uh, I, I like this idea that um, you discover, rediscover the, the watchmaking story. So as I'm curious, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, things to, to learn or rediscover. Um, and especially by serendipity, you know. At what what types of individuals does your organization need? Like, are you are you hi- hiring students and you know library science you know graduates? Like, when you get the funding, how do you grow so that you can do more of what you're trying to do? I'm curious. The focus for us is it's about uh, digitization, but it's done with the partner, external partner. And they do the actual scanning and stuff like that? Yeah, okay. and OCR and everything. The platform, we, we work also with an agency specializing in this kind of uh, search engine. 
Uh, for me, the, the key uh, the key point to to really develop ourselves is about um, the CTO. I have a, an amazing CTO. Is is the guy uh, really data oriented? Right. Um, so that's important. And yes, I would love to have more people uh, do some some curation and also um, helps to identify archive. Uh, everywhere in the world, it's it's still an important part for us. I want to talk about AI or what people like to refer to as AI. Yeah. You now have a growing database. And at yeah. some point, it would make sense to train uh, an AI algorithm on it so that you can ask it questions like, what was the first year this happened? Or what types of watch projects yeah. was this individual involved in? How far away are we from those types of applications being available to you, is that something that's on your radar? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we already have some AI in the platform. By um, It's uh, about visual recognition. Right. Uh, so that's the point. The, now the real question is about AI related to the chat GPT um, technology. It's, it's really a technology that helps you to understand the context and to have an answer I mean, a rich answer. The question for us is uh, what kind of AI we will uh, implement in the platform. So for the moment, we test uh, the platform. It's a beta test uh, platform you have online. It's it's really advanced, but it's a beta test platform. Uh, we learn how people um, search, uh, what kind of information they search. And we also have built a panel of um, early users because uh, we this will help us to select the right part of the AI technology. Is it better for them to have an AI we have a bad question or an AI that can visualize the you, answer. You have to choose you know, at this point. Yeah, you have to choose. And, and, and I want to choose uh, by uh, knowing exactly what how the user needs uh, on the platform. Okay, that, that's interesting. AI for AI. Because I, I know that they're working on technologies to merge all that stuff together. And the idea is there's all these amazing databases out there, you know, the watch libraries database, but around the world, just databases. But most of them are useless because it would take the average person a lifetime or more, maybe many lifetimes, to go through the data and then to synthesize it all and then to be like, you know, tell me some interesting things about this entire database. That's not human work anymore. We're not able to do that. So we're now developing machines that you can basically just throw an entire database in and be like, okay, there's text in here, there's videos, there's images, just absorb it all, make sense of it, and then have a nice natural language user interface where a human can interact with you and ask questions about this database and you can answer it and you can be an expert on it. The AI becomes the mega teacher. Yeah, and for us, it's really important to use AI as a way to augment the data. Not a way to select uh, your answer for you. Um, it's it's really something important in the platform. We we didn't uh, implement any algorithm. It's the user. They they do their own search. They select their own filter uh, to really have access to the content they want to 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 see or to find. Um, otherwise, you 
the temptation could be to really push, you know, push information uh, to user. And, and at the end, uh, for a user that's looking for something specific, is uh, not able to find it because uh, your search engine and your system always present the same oh, thing. Oh, I mean, look, I think you, what we're ta- touching on is this no- notion that this is a, an advanced, advancing world of interfaces with data. Uh, there's companies, you know, Google, Apple, Garmin, that have these in- incredibly mind-numbingly amount, huge amounts of data, and the problem is they're not always sure how to visualize this or what to do with it. And so, you know, the, the large language model yeah. um, software systems and what we call AI and things like that are the perfect solution of how to handle the huge amounts of data, but we're just at the infancy. And now all we have is our science fiction minds to think about what can be done, but we know that ultimately these are supposed to be data calculators. And we love calculators because they simplify and make something easy that was hard and now give us new information. So it empowers us, mm-hmm. but we're just now making the calculators. And then the next thing is what questions do we ask the calculators? Yeah, I see. And especially, I guess, that in, um, as you're based in California, you're really close to the, this kind of uh, technology. I mean, sure. look, it's a, it's a, we're in media, right? And it's an interesting conversation. Uh, you know, my team has a lot of, you know, <laughs> hot feelings about AI and things like that. I'm much more open-minded. Mm-hmm. I understand. I, I see it as a tool. And for me, any tool, if it replaces something uh, that humans used to do, then a human probably didn't want to do it anyways, and it just empowers a human to do something that much more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's something we do, we we don't know yet how how which which aspect we will implement, but uh, we be part of the of the work and we do with our panel. But that's <laughs> going to be, I think, the future, Martinez. People are going to be able to go to it yeah. and say, you know, something as vague as. What was Audemars Piguet good at in the 1960s? I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. specific question that relies on a lot of context and things like that. But you mm-hmm. could, you could, you could very easily have this with even today's technology. You'd have to train it correctly. But this is the type of questions that you could ask. That right now you'd be like, "Well, I have to look through, you know, five thousand documents, and then I'll I'll be able to make that decision." You know, that's you know, we're mm-hmm. we're talking about speeding up this research. Um, and I guess, you know, we don't know how this is going to be used necessarily, but this is what it means to have uh, uh, AI power when it comes to these huge databases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For the moment, we, we have like uh, 325,000 documents. Um, so it's good, but uh, the idea is really to reach the point to 3 million. Yeah. Because talking wow. about AI and talking about uh, deep learning, you you need to really have like a lot of data, and, and yeah, yeah, for sure we will implement. Um, I hope next year, uh, based on what we learn from the user behavior and experience of the platform, how the AI, as you said, can 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 speed the search, can help the search. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting questions. And a few years from now, we'll have to speak again on this exact yeah. topic and see actually what you've been able to use AI tools for and maybe what you haven't. Last question, and this is really just related to sort of what some of your priorities are right now. What are you currently working on, um, you know, in terms of the the, the projects or the uh, the various areas right now uh, at the Watch Library? Um, and, you know, what, what, what has all your attention at the moment? 
in terms of content, uh, we are working on, on funding um, the next digitization projects. I'm thinking about the Revue Internationale d'Horlogerie. Um, it's an archive, amazing archive. It's like the Horlogical Journal. It's about 150,000 pages about watchmaking. Cool. And then as, as it's international, it's super interesting because it's, it's about everything in different countries in the world. So I really hope that we'll be able to find this uh, by, by the end of the Wh When year. was this made? Second part of the 19th century until just beginning of the beginning of the 20th Okay, so century. are you looking for these archives or do you have it and you're hoping to digitize it? We, we okay. have the archive in the Musée International d'Horlogerie. We are looking for the for the phone because it's uh, an important project. So, yeah. Is it expensive these days to engage in the digitization? I know it's a manual process and a human being has to often physically scan page by page. It's you know there aren't standard sizes or automated ways of doing it. Yeah, it's expensive because it's it's not only about digitization, uh, digitize each page. Uh, it's about the layer of recognition you had after. So you can see the text. So it's not just a picture, but you can read the text. Yeah, you can read the text. You can, you know, it's a full text uh, indexation, I'd okay. say. And then you have to index on the platform. So it, it, takes, uh, it takes some time also to be able after to really uh, optimize the recognition of the document within the platform as part as as part of the search of the user so yeah it's it's uh, it's significant <laughs> let's say and uh, in terms of priority too uh, i'm working on different partnership uh, in different countries with uh, source holder they already digitized their archive and and the idea is to uh, to really build partnership like that, they can share their archive within the platform. So already digitized archive. And, um, and yes, the, the second part of the platform and the second release is important for us. It will come next year. And uh, as I said, for the moment, we are really uh, observing, analyzing, um, discussing with early users to really understand how we can improve the, the platform and how we can push further the, the projects in terms of technology. And as we just said, AI is part of the, is part of this. Very interesting, Martin. Thank you for talking about the watch library. Where can people learn more about the watch library on the internet right now? Yeah, of course. It's watchlibraries.org. Um, so it's uh, open data, uh, open access. So please enjoy. And, and we see that on the, on the webpage, uh, there is a survey, um, because we really want to hear feedback from, from users. Thank you. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Martine Deprel. Martine, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.